I think if they could get 12 lobotomized hospital patients, that would be their preference to just nod through whatever they want. You know, it is almost like they're disgusted by this inconvenience of a jury. to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome back to this show, the Lions of Liberty podcast, episode number 76. Before I get to today's guest, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. Your fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not to some massive crony insurance company. To learn more, head to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a libertarian activist who has led many successful projects, including We Won't Fly, an anti-TSA campaign, and he is currently involved with something called the Jury Rights Project, which we'll be discussing today. James Babb, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you here, James. And, you know, I always like to start off finding out just what makes my guests tick. So why don't you just tell us first how you became a libertarian? What really set that spark off inside you? Well, I think I've always been a libertarian be before I knew what the word libertarian was. I just felt that people had the right to be left alone and to live their life their own way as long as they don't bother anybody else. I think, I think that's kind of a, just a normal perspective. Uh, I think I first heard the word libertarian during Harry Brown's first presidential campaign where I was just maybe flipping channels and I saw Harry Brown on C-SPAN. And I was like, well, that's, that's weird. There's a guy running for president. And wait a minute, he's saying things that I actually agree with. Hold, hold on. This is <laughs> what's going on here. So I started paying attention to the libertarians. Not really, you know, that interested, but I just thought, well, you know what? If election comes around, I, I think I'm just going to vote libertarian for the hell of it. I guess later I found a in Pennsylvania a, a gubernatorial candidate who was a libertarian. I had made contact with him and started hanging around with some local libertarians. And then I started getting exposed to stuff like the Future of Freedom Foundation. And I started reading things like Jacob Hornberger and Jim Bovard and Sheldon Richmond. And they were the ones that really helped me put together libertarianism and, you know, really show me what it is as a coherent philosophy and other writers. And I really started just trying to work out my inconsistencies and, you know, really just try to put it all together. And, uh, you know, eventually you become an anarchist when you go down that road. So so now I'm an anarchist. Yeah, I think it started, I guess, with Harry Brown back, uh, you know, I don't know how many years ago, over a decade ago. And James, and a lot of what you said there is, is actually a lot of what I commonly hear from my other guests. Number one is that they kind of always were a libertarian. They just didn't realize it until they maybe heard somebody else speaking about it, heard them putting these ideas together, heard them putting that sort of label on it, as you did with Harry Brown. Now, Harry Brown was a big early influence for me. A good friend of mine one day handed me his book, How to Live Free in an Unfree World, and I had kind of been 
hearing about this Ron Paul character. This is bef- way before he ran for president, but at that around that same time. So between those two, I started to actually realize, wait a minute, there are there are political views out there that don't just fall into the standard Republican, Democrat, left-right paradigm that we're just force-fed our whole lives. And it's really just once you actively go down that path and you start to kind of, you know, like you said, address some inconsistencies, do more reading, really start thinking about it, they can really put things together and, and try to go forward with a more consistent philosophy. Now. How did you actually take that interest, that interest in the ideas of liberty, and convert that into your work as an activist? Now, I know you launched the We Won't Fly campaign several years back. I was a big fan of that, because I'm no fan of what the TSA has been doing. Um, I actually was personally affected in a way. I'd, this is one of our, our most popular articles of all time, and I don't, I don't know if there's a reason this was a popular article, but basically it was the one where I describe my sexual assault by the TSA, um, where I was actually had a TSA agent reach his hands unabashedly down my pants and touch my quote-unquote junk. So uh, ever since that incident, well, even before that incident, but that incident really, I guess, heightened my awareness of just how deep and severe the depravity the, the, the TSA's policies have become. And even when I tried to challenge those policies, I actually spoke with someone at the TSA, spoke with a supervisor, and he confirmed, no, that's the policy, reaching down your pants and touching whatever they have to touch to make sure you're not quote-unquote carrying something down there. That's what they told me is the policy. And the fact that even telling them what happened and them kind of just confirming that was their policy blew my mind more than anything else. So so why don't you tell us a little bit more about, I know I kind of went on a little side rant there about my own story, but tell us more about why you first got, I guess, um, involved in activism overall and with this We Won't Fly campaign. You know, that's a good question. And I don't know where I went wrong. Um, <laughs> somehow I got involved in this stuff. And you know, over the years, there's always been different projects that have been of interest to me. And, you know, some are more successful than others. Um, we Won't Fly got a, a lot of attention because that was, you know, such a, a big topic. But uh, other topics I've been interested in over the years are things like the drug war or eminent domain or currency, uh, Bitcoin, or be- before Bitcoin, it was, you know, it was silver currency and, you know, freeing the currency, you know, free markets. Really, I mean, there's so many opportunities for for libertarian activism, but I always, you know, really try to find something that's really going to make a difference. And the thing that made We Won't Fly interesting was, uh, you know, was just really how it exposed the the true nature of of the state and and what government can do. Um, you know, they say if you want to, you know, make uh, vegetarians, you give them a tour of the the sausage factory. You know, <laughs> well, the the TSA was basically the government, you know, exposed. Uh, for people, and they really experienced it firsthand. It wasn't just some, you know, some libertarian conspiracy theorist telling them the government was bad. They're seeing it with their own eyes. They were experiencing it with their, with their, in in person. And I'm I'm sorry you had to endure that assault like so many other people have. It's horrible. And there's just really no defense of it that I've ever come across. There's nobody that says, oh no, they really have to put their hand in grandma's pants, or the terrorists are going to win. There's just no defending it. So uh, that was a good opportunity. Um, but, you know, yeah, I don't know exactly, you know, what made me decide to get get interested in this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, but here I am. You know, I think once you once you sort of get a taste of it and and if you have some success, it's it's really infectious. Well, sure. Once you realize that you can actually take action, whether it's just speaking out, starting a blog, starting a podcast, or actually getting out in the street and and creating some kind of activist movement, once you realize that 
that those things aren't just little hobbies, that they can actually affect other people. They can actually change the way people are viewing things. I mean, I learned about the We Won't Fly campaign on CNN. So, I mean, that is about as successful as you can get when you can actually break through and the, the mainstream media is forced to cover you. Um, so let's talk about your current project. It's called the Jury Rights Project, and it's focused on the topic of jury nullification. Now, a lot of my listeners who are familiar with these ideas might have heard that term before. A lot of people listening that right now might just be learning about libertarianism and may have never heard that term before. So why don't you just start with telling us what exactly is jury nullification? Well, jury nullification is a doctrine that says a juror has the power to judge the law itself not just the facts of a case. And this is a centuries-old tradition. It actually predates the Magna Carta. Basically, if you have jury duty, and if you think the law is unjust, or if you think it's being misapplied, or even if you think the penalty is too harsh for a particular crime, you can say not guilty. And this is an important cornerstone of the justice system. It's an essential part of our whole jury process to to have there's really no point in having a jury of your peers if they just have to obey a judge so this is sort of a final peaceful check against a tyrannical government or unjust imprisonment now you mentioned this has been used in the past this is not in a lot of people might hear jury nullification and think this is some cockamamie new age idea that crazy libertarians just came up with it but it actually is something that has historical precedent so when has jury nullification been used before, like successfully? Well, there's there's a bunch of historical accounts, and there's also more recent accounts that, that we can go into. But one of the most famous is the trial of William Penn. And this was around 1670. William Penn was charged with the heinous crime of speaking to a group of Quakers without permission. So he was on trial for it, and the jury said, no, now that's not a legitimate crime. We're going to say not guilty even though they knew he actually talked to these Quakers. And the judge was furious. The judge tried to punish them. They starved them, but they said, nope, not guilty. So um, that wait, was... Wait, the judge was, starved them? Yeah, <laughs> that, did I hear that right? I've yeah, never heard the, this story um, before. Yeah, it was, you know, around that era, if you didn't, if the verdict didn't didn't go along with what the Crown wanted, they would, they could do all kinds of cruel things to you. I mean, it wow. was, a, uh, that was just part of it. It wasn't until later that, it was actually established that, okay, all right, we can't punish juries for their verdict. <laughs> well, but, it kind of, uh, kind of ruins the whole point when, uh, when the juries are kind of at, at the threat of, of punishment as well, huh? Right. Well, you know, but it, it yet um, we're, we're not that far from that today. Um, you know, as, as strange as that seems, although jurors aren't punished, the, the process is still ridiculously manipulated to get a guilty verdict. So um, some of the other really important historical cases – during slavery times, I think it was around 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act made it a crime to harbor a slave, even in the northern states. So people were actually put on trial for this, for, for putting a slave in your barn and helping them avoid capture uh, was a crime. People were prosecuted, and the jury said, no, that's not legitimate. We're not going to go along with that. So basically they nullified the Fugitive Slave Act in the northern states by just refusing to convict. Uh, alcohol prohibition, jury nullification played an important role there because they just couldn't get convictions for alcohol-related crimes. People said, nope, that law's, that law's not legitimate. I don't care if he smuggled rum. I'm going to say not guilty. Eventually, they, they had to give up and change the law. Today, you know, you hear mostly when it comes to drug cases, 
you hear about jury nullification. But it's also been used in a lot of other areas as well. But one, there was a famous case recently in New Hampshire, a man named Doug Darrell, who was a or is a Rastafarian in New Hampshire, and he was charged with marijuana cultivation. And his lawyer was able to argue that this law was unjust because he used cannabis for religious and medical purposes. And therefore, the, uh, it would be unjust to convict him for this. And the jury unanimously agreed and said, yep, <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds good. Not guilty, uh, because it would have been unjust to put him in jail for that. And what kind of makes that case different is the fact that the judge allowed this, allowed this argument to be presented clearly for the jury. The jury was, had no doubt about their right to say not guilty. In many other courtrooms, that is not the case, and the judges are really scared of jurors finding out that they have this power. Yeah, James, I mean, as you described, this is not some kind of a libertarian conspiracy theory that jurors can just up and decide that they don't agree with the law. This is something that has historical precedent and has been used effectively in the past and in the more recent past. So, you know, it's, it's obviously a real thing. And yet this is not something most people have heard about. It's certainly not something I, I asked a lawyer friend of mine if it's taught in law school and they it's taught as a concept in, in a very kind of uh, we'll mention that this exists kind of way but it's not taught as something lawyers should ever use or mention or bring up or, or anything like that. So I mean, it's definitely not something that a, a judge would ever allow to a lawyer to mention or bring up to a jury. So you know, it seems like the biggest problem with jury nullification really is the fact that most people simply just don't know that they can do this because they're never going to be told that at any point in the jury selection process. And I mean, I know when I get a jury duty summons, at least, um, and even most recently, I, I went uh, maybe six to eight months ago, but you know, when I'm probably like most people, I see that jury summons in the mail and I just roll my eyes. Ugh, I got to drag myself down to this courthouse. And for me, it's difficult because I'm a freelancer. I mean, I, I don't have a full-time job anywhere. I, I take freelance assignments. So if I'm going to take a day out of my life or multiple days, if in the case of a, something that goes to trial, you know, I, I'm costing myself money. I don't have an employer that's you know, qualified by law to pay me for that time. And I think they pay jurors something like $17 a day or something like that. So it's it's very demotivating, I think, for most totally. people to, to actually get up and go there. But, you know, knowing some of this and knowing about jury nullification, I mean, what would you tell somebody now when they get that notice in the mail uh, about going and serving on the jury? Would you just – I mean, what do you do? I don't know. Have you gotten a summons recently? Do you actually encourage people to go and take this knowledge and bring it with them to the courtroom? Well, you know, and you have to make an individual choice. Um, it's certainly, you know, understandable when somebody wants to get out of it. When you get a letter commanding you to do something by the government, of course you're not going to want to do it. That's <laughs> it's nothing wrong with right. that at all. And in fact, probably the best way to get out of jury duty is to is to print out 50 jury nullification flyers and pass them out in the jury room when you get there. You will be quickly escorted out the door. Yeah, that'll do it, and then that'll that'll accomplish the uh, the double win of uh, you get you get to go home, and now some other people have found out about this concept. But for those that have the time, um, once you realize what an opportunity it is, I think people are more willing to to make that time. You know, I don't I would probably feel differently about it if I didn't know as much as I do about the justice system. And that's something that you know, I think a lot of people a lot of people take it for granted that this is this is what you see in the movies or on TV that we have this fair impartial system and that 
everything is geared towards the defense and making sure that no one innocent, you know, is convicted and they get every chance and everybody just wants to find the the real bad guy and, you know, and, and vindicate the good guys, you know, and if you just watch TV or, you know, went to government school, that's what people are going to believe. So if you believe that, well, what's really the big deal about jury nullification? You know, like, why, why would I even care, right? But it was, I guess it was a, I don't know how many years ago it was, 2006, 2005, around there. Larkin Rose was on trial for a disagreement with the IRS. And it was in, in Philadelphia. And I said, you know, I want to go to this. I thought I was going to learn about tax law because I had heard, you know, his opinions and, and people in this tax honesty movement about what the, the tax laws were. And but I was like, well, I thought, you know, if I go to this trial, I'm going to hear the opposing view and they're going to explain why Larkin was wrong. OK, that's that's what I thought the trial was going to be. I was stunned when I when I saw the, the whole process was really nothing but keeping the jury in the dark and preventing Larkin from introducing any evidence at all that would have rendered a not guilty verdict. I, I was stunned. They were constantly shuffled out of the courtroom, one thing after the next. The prosecution could present anything they found on Larkin's computer, and Larkin could present virtually nothing in his defense. I really, I guess that was a real wake-up call for me about what this justice system is. I mean, you can read about it, but man, until you see it, it's it's really hard to believe. So I think that's what kind of uh, really contributed to my motivation to want to get involved in this area because I, I see what a sham it is and that the fact that they still have to to put a jury in there you know gives us little crack in the armor that that we can exploit and it seems that the jury process for a lot of these prosecutors it's really just kind of this inconvenient thing that they have to do as a formality to actually bring what charges against whoever they're bringing them against really they they just want to come in there get their case closed and get out of there but yeah. you know and it's really you can really tell this when you actually go for the jury selection process because they give you a list of questions and and you know related to the case or just to get your general views on things and when I went you know, a few months ago I wasn't necessarily trying to go out of my way to get out of it yeah I didn't really want to be there yeah I knew it might be costing me work but I didn't really have anything scheduled so you know I was happy to just see the process through and you just see how it went because I'd never actually gotten that far into it I've never actually even been it's my first time I'd actually been brought into the room where they start asking you questions and that kind of thing. Uh, so I just, but I, you know, I wasn't going to try to lie my way onto the jury either. I was just giving honest answers. So they started asking things about, you know, your past experiences with police. And if you've ever had a bad experience with the police and you know, I, <laughs> I have a couple of times had a, a, just like probably almost everyone. I mean, I'm not the only guy that, that said they had, um, I mean, a lot of people have had bad experiences with the, with the police and they, they kind of press the questions further and, you know, asked me if I'd still be able to remain on, biased and that kind of thing and and in all honesty i do think i could be unbiased but you know i was trying to explain it in a way where i was saying you know to me part of being unbiased is recognizing the bias of the police <laughs> so if if the police officer is testifying against this man and i don't know what the charge was yet 
But, you know, I would, I would have to take his testimony into account and, you know, realize that his testimony isn't, is, could possibly be tainted because he is the police officer. He has a stake in the result of this case. He's not just an outside observer. And that's really all I said. And, you know, as you can imagine, I was gone, you know, a few seconds later from, from that process. But it really seems to me that they're, they seem to be really aiming at people that gave really the most generic kind of cookie cutter responses to their questions. And anybody that really seemed to put any thought in the things and you know even think on 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 another level was summarily just tossed out of the room so i mean to me it just very it really stood out that the set of questionings the line of line of questioning is not obviously the uh, defense probably want wanted to keep a few of us in there but the the questions are set up in such a way to draw out people that are gonna i don't know overthink things in their view or try to really just look at things in, in a, a more fair way, which is what they claim they're aiming for. And the way that they select the jury just seems to really produce the opposite effect. Totally. I mean, everything in the courtroom is designed to basically render the jury to be, you know, just a, just a, another piece of machinery in the room. That's going to, uh, it's going to obey their commands. During Larkin's trial, I remember one particular thing the judge said, he said, now you don't go home and look up the law. I tell you what the law is. Okay. Like, they literally – I think if they could get 12 lobotomized hospital patients, that would be their preference, to just nod through whatever they want. You know, it, it is almost like they're disgusted by this inconvenience of a jury interfering with their operation. It, it's horrible. I mean, just look at the, the way the courtroom is structured. The judge, you know, wears the special robe – like some type of clerical figure. He's up on a platform above everyone else. He's, he's surrounded by flags and giant logos, and he's given a title that sounds like, like royalty or nobility, and everybody takes their hat off and stands when he enters the room, and like, wow, this guy. People think, oh, I guess here's the guy in charge, right? Right. You know? And, and I mean, let's face it. A juror comes in. They don't know anything about the justice system. They don't know anything. Everything they see to them is probably this completely new thing. They're they're just baffled by the entire process. They don't know what to do. And they probably went to government school and you know, the first thing they're gonna do is, well, where's the authority figure I take my instructions from? You know, who is he? Okay, there he is. Um I, you know, oh, he says I should disregard what I just heard, you know. Ooh, think, 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 poof, it's gone. You know, like <laughs> I understand why they do it in certain cases, but I, I always thought it was ridiculous when I would hear that on TV or read a transcript where they say, now you will disregard everything you just heard. It's like, what do you mean disregard? Like, we heard it. I mean, how can we act like that didn't just happen? So I, I always think it's funny when they do stuff like that. They'll they'll bring out evidence or reference evidence, but then the judge will say, okay, item X, Y, Z, you have to basically pretend never happened, I guess, is right, how they but, do things. Well, you know, but they, they really try to avoid that, but normally what they'll do is that the first mention of some type of evidence that, that could generate a not guilty verdict. Oh, 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 stop, stop, stop. Get the jury out of here. Then we'll discuss whether they can hear it or not. You know, like they'll just constantly shuffle these juries out, out, out. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, we don't know if that. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. You can let it back in. You know, once, once the, the lawyer has been instructed that they will be forbidden to mention that topic it's like two parents having a topic about you know having a conversation about something serious but they don't want the kids to hear it so it's hey johnny cover your ears up for this one you know Co don't listen to this one go in the other room for a minute okay come back in it's it's all they treat they treat the jury as like little children who they have to sort of hide information from and can only you know interpret things for them and that kind of thing
It's exactly what it is. And I would add to this list of reasons a juror might want to say not guilty if, okay, if, yeah, if the law is unjust. So, you know, for instance, if there's no victim to be found, uh, definitely say not guilty. If the punishment is too harsh, first of all, they don't even want the jury to know what the punishments are. They, they go to great lengths to keep that a secret. That's often forbidden. So if you don't even know what the punishment is, you should say not guilty. And if you've spent the entire trial being shuffled out the door so you don't accidentally hear something, you, you, should, know, you should know there's a problem and say not guilty. These are all reasons that, you know, for the observant juror should be a clue that this system is completely corrupt. And a lot of times juries aren't even allowed to know the extent of the punishment. Isn't that right? They just have to decide on the crime. And maybe they do sometimes, but I know a lot of cases that information is kept from them until it's too late, until they've rendered their verdict. Yeah. And then so many times we've heard in these cases after the fact, these jurors are horrified to know what they've done. Oh, my God. I didn't know that person would go to jail for life. Oh, no. And they're horrified that they can't go back and change their verdict. It's it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking when you find out you know what happens after these trials. Then the jury can find out all the truth about the case and, and everything. And and they're just crushed because they were made a part of it. Wow. Now, to me, I mean, hearing about jury nullification, I mean, it sounds kind of like the thing where if enough people, well, first of all, if enough people even understood individual rights and you know why we shouldn't be aggressing on our fellow man and that kind of thing, a lot of these things wouldn't be a problem in the first place. But, you know, if enough people just understood the concept of jury nullification, we could really see a sea change in how our laws are enforced. Because if, hey, if they pass all these terrible laws, but people are just overturning them at trial every time, well, eventually it becomes irrelevant, as they did with fugitive slave laws, as they did during Prohibition. There's plenty of historical precedent for this as an effective method, but I think the big problem is that people just don't really know about it, and that is something you are attempting to address here with your project. Yes, we're finally going to get to talk about it now. It's the Jury Rights Project. So exactly what is the Jury Rights Project, and what are you guys out there doing to raise awareness about jury nullification? Well, um, I give George Donnelly a lot of credit for the Jury Rights Project. He's the one that really came up with a, with an overall concept of an educational program that's web-based to inform jurors about their rights or inform the, the general public about their rights if selected for jury duty. My role has been as a project facilitator doing some different billboard campaigns and pamphleting operations at specific courthouses to bring awareness and, you know, basically, we just want to get the word out as, as, to as many people as possible to build communities where other people are sharing this information, despite the fact that, you know, in our libertarian circles, this seems to be, you know, kind of common knowledge. Most people have no idea about it. They really have no idea what kind of power they, they have to get a, a peaceful person off the hook of these tyrannical laws. So it's juryrightsproject.com. People can sign up for an electronic course. They can sign up to receive email notifications, find out about different projects going on, like the one we have in New York City, which is currently running, which is a billboard campaign at the 500 Pearl Street Courthouse. What is the significance of that courthouse? I know there's been a fairly high-profile trial going on there recently. Maybe you can uh, in inform our listeners. Sure. Um, well, the first time I was at this courthouse was with Professor Julian Heichland. And he was the one that, that really sort of got me into this type of activism of pamphleting outside of a courthouse. And he was arrested there multiple times for pamphleting, and he just would not yield. He kept going back, and they would physically hurt him. They sent him to Rikers Island for two weeks. For just giving out jury nullification information? <laughs> 
Yeah, and and ref, and refusing to to cooperate in any way, he would just lie down on the ground. Wow, wouldn't give him his name. He's just a just an ornery, ornery old dude. Just says, "I'm not yielding." He's like, "There's nothing you're going to do to me that's make me yield." And they fought him, and they fought him, and they fought him, and and he was vindicated. They even tried to entrap him by creating fake jurors to go out and talk to him about a. Uh, <laughs> A specific case, and he didn't take the bait, and they still prosecuted him for jury tampering, and he fought it, and he fought it at great personal expense, wow. and and he eventually, you know, they had to drop the charges. They never had a case, but they can bring charges against you as punishment itself, just to force you to defend yourself, it can ruin someone's finances. So, you know, he laid the groundwork. He basically, as far as I can tell, you know, personally made it safe to to pamphlet at this courthouse. It's significant for that reason to me that I was really anxious to get back to this particular courthouse and make a difference. A good way to get media attention is to to do something during a high-profile trial, and the, the trial of Ross Ulbricht is currently going on in Manhattan. Now, we're not connected with this trial in any way, but if that happens to bring media attention to our billboards and to the pamphleting operation, you know that's definitely a win for us. Ross Ulbricht, for those that aren't aware, is the man accused of creating and operating the Silk Road sort of black market website where people could exchange just about anything. Drugs, uh, obviously, is the biggest thing that, that was drew the ire of the feds there. But um, that, that's what that trial is all about, for those that don't know. And I guess recently, despite the fact that there's been a legal precedent set there that you can perform at that courthouse, I, I recently read that the judge in that case, Judge Catherine Forrest, actually did order the pamphleting to stop. Can you update us on exactly what happened there? Well, she didn't order the pamphleting to stop. Even she knows that she does not have that power. She was quite upset about it, however. Okay. But because she can no longer threaten the volunteers, what she can do and what she did do, which is completely medieval, is she actually threatened the Ross Albrecht defense. And she said, well, you know what? If those people keep doing it, I'm going to take the jury and I'm going to ship them off to a remote location and bus them in through our secret bat cave, okay, <laughs> where, where they will be cut off from the outside world. Now, you know, at first I was like, well, so what? You know, but then I th- uh, it was explained to me, you know, the, the significance of this. It's because the jury is not going to be told, look, there's this dangerous pamphlet out there with 100% factual information about your rights. And we have to you know, go to extreme measures to keep you from finding out about this. No, that's not what they're going to be told. They're going to be told, we need to protect you from this dangerous mob boss who, you know, this is for, you know, protect your family, you know, because this guy on trial is so dangerous that it would reflect very poorly on that particular defendant, which is, you know, I got to give credit to, to Judge Forrest for the craftiness and the, I mean. Well, sure, the, the jury would suddenly think they're, you know, they got Tony Soprano on trial there. They, they're going to get whacked if they make a wrong move when she, you know, if she says something like that to them. Right. But however, you know, the billboard campaign is going to continue. We currently have six of these kiosk ads surrounding the courthouse on sidewalks. And people can see photos of these if they go to juryrightsproject.com slash NYC. There's an Indiegogo campaign. We've secured funding to keep these up through February, but we want to keep it going as long as possible or even expand it if people want to contribute. Um, you know, we'd certainly love to have additional contributions. We've done, I've been absolutely overwhelmed with the support. It only took literally, I think it was 
a few days or less than a week to get the first month paid for. Now the second month you know, is basically covered. It's, it's pretty impressive. So I, I think you know, if you want to convert some of your dollars or bitcoins into a way to make this Judge Forrest a little more grumpy, uh, this is a way to do it. <laughs> now, James, I've got just a few more questions for you. But first, I want to take a minute to give a little love to our sponsor, Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductible skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Now, back in the beginning when we were talking about your kind of how you came into libertarianism and your philosophical development over that time, that you consider yourself an anarchist now. So, you know, being an anarchist, how do you picture a jury system or even a justice system operating in a, a stateless society where this is not all kind of organized top down and that kind of thing? How do you see that unfolding? Do you have any kind of ideas about that? Well, what a great question. And uh, I mean, my first answer is to say, I don't know, because, <laughs> you know, it is it is a very complicated question and it, and it certainly wouldn't be the same system in every place. That's for sure. Um, you know, but I think it would be radically different from what we have now. And, you know, I can think of a of a hundred different ways that we could have a more just system. I, I think the concept of a, a jury of our peers is a sound concept, but it's been so polluted and so distorted and twisted. There has to be better ways to, to go about this. But I would I would think that, OK, there's a market for justice. There's a market for this. And because there's a market demand that means people a lot smarter than I am are going to experiment with different solutions. And I think that if we can remove the coercion of the state, that some wonderful ideas will, will come to the surface. How's that for a non-answer? Not bad. No, it's, I like it a lot. And, you know, it's hard to envision how things might be in, in a different world where there's more justice, where people view things differently, where people view our interactions with our fellow man differently. We don't really know necessarily exactly how every little detail might work out, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't advocate for justice and we shouldn't advocate for a, you know, a world where we're not coercing everybody into whatever system we think is the best. And hey, maybe in a market-based system, jurors would get more than 17 bucks a day for their service. I mean, maybe people could even become known as fair, just jurors, and maybe that would demand you know, their own market rate. Maybe people could be career jurors. I mean, I don't know if that's a good or yeah. bad thing. I'm just tossing Who stuff knows? out there. But, but and, yeah. you know, and I'm sure that restitution would be much more important than it is now. Um, you know, you, you hear virtually nothing about restitution for victims when, when there's a crime. I mean, the first thing that I would, I, I think, that would be required in any kind of just system would be the victim being made whole or as close to whole as possible. To me, that would be the focus of a successful system. Right. It seems like nowadays our system is just focused on 
punishment of you know whoever the criminal is and in in our case so many laws are are with victimless crimes that we're running around just punishing people when there's no victim at all and that is to me the exact opposite of what constitutes a just system so and and hopefully you know i think jury nullification this concept i mean it's it's kind of hard because in so many ways almost every single human being needs to learn about jury nullification to make it effective on a mass scale because they'll just it seems like they'll try to filter these people out but i don't know maybe enough people can learn about it and kind of go in their stealth with this knowledge, knowing that if they really do think something is unjust, they can, in fact, essentially, at least in one case at a time, overturn a bad law, prevent someone who committed a quote-unquote victimless crime from being, you know, the victim of their own crime and being tossed in jail themselves. So it's certainly an important concept, and I'm so glad there are people like you, like George Donnelly, that are out there really promoting this stuff, because someone's got to do it, and I can't talk about everything here. So we need other people informing people about some of these more specific topics. And James, I always like to ask my guests for book recommendations. So what would you recommend to our listeners out there who are either maybe they're just learning about jury nullification for the first time or maybe just learning about libertarian ideas for the first time? What book would you recommend to them? Okay. Um, well, I've got two that I'd like to recommend. One on the topic of jury nullification is called, ironically, Jury Nullification by Clay Conrad. It's called Jury Nullification, The Evolution of a Doctrine. It's published by Cato. This is an authoritative book on this topic, a great, excellent book. But for libertarians, there's another book out there I want to recommend. It's really fun, and I just got a kick out of reading it. It's very light reading, easy reading, and it's by Jim Bovard. And it's called Public Policy Hooligan, Rollicking and Wrangling from Helltown to Washington. It's basically an autobiography by Jim Bovard. And Jim is a famous libertarian writer. Certainly, you know, educated me on many topics over the years. This is sort of like an origin story um, for me. I, you know, as I used to read comic books, you always I like to hear like, "How did that hero become the hero?" You know, and this sort of takes you through his early career as a writer. And so many libertarians are interested in a career in writing that I think this book would be particularly informative to young writers or, or upstart writers. But it's also really fun because Jim gets into trouble. He does all kinds of crazy things. He he sneaks into places to do investigative journalism. He appropriates documents from government buildings without permission. Anyway, it's it's just a really fun book. It's available on Kindle. So public policy hooligan. Uh, James, before I let you go, I want to give you one more chance to give everyone a little roundup of exactly where they can find the Jury Rights Project as well as any other projects you've got going on, how they can contact you and all that stuff. Well, juryrightsproject.com you know it's a great place to go i also recommend the fully informed jury association fija.org for additional information they also have flyers that you can download and take to the courthouse or or to your community meeting and pass out or share with your friends Um, they've been at it for decades providing a lot of good resources and and reporting on this topic and I'd, i'd certainly want to encourage people to try to you know, start their own pamphleting operations. Uh, it's not very hard. People, folks can reach me through Facebook. Uh, in fact, if you go to jamesbab.com, it'll just redirect you to my Facebook. Send me a message. You know, I can help you get set up with some training and materials that you could use to start something in your own community. James Babb, thanks so much again for coming on the show today. You're doing great work, and I wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you very much. Back after a Hey guys, Mark Clare here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. 
we bring you the morning roar. That's right. Every Monday to Friday, we'll have a brand new edition of the morning roar. where We provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. This is Glenn Jacobs, and you're listening to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. All right, folks, I really hope you enjoyed my interview with James Babb. And if you didn't already know about the concept of jury nullification, I hope you learned a little bit more about it today, because to me, this is one of the most important concepts that people can learn about. There is so much injustice today in our system. From the way prosecutors operate, the way the judges operate, the way juries are selected, the way juries are manipulated. So much injustice. But even if we assume that the actual system itself is carried out in a fair and just manner, in an unbiased manner, which as James pointed out, is far from the case. Even if we assume that, we have to realize that there are so many bad laws out there that even if everybody did things, you know, followed things by the book... There would still be so many thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands of people going to jail because of bad laws for victimless crimes. And we saw Eric Garner in New York City. He was the victim of a bad law, the victim of a victimless crime law, taxing cigarettes at an insane rate, which creates the conditions for Eric Garner to go out and sell cigarettes. Just like someone in a store, you know, 10 feet away was doing as well. The guy in the store is fine. The guy outside on the street, well, we know what happened to him. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not just. And think about how many hundreds of thousands of people every year are brought up and brought to trial. And now much of this doesn't get to trial because usually they're pressured into taking a deal because they know the trial is going to end up in their you know, being found guilty. But how many people are brought into this system because of a victimless crime? Because they owned a plant. Now, I've talked about the war on drugs numerous times on this show, and I will continue to do so in the future because it is the absolute greatest affront to humanity committed on each other by our fellow man. Laws that punish people simply for owning a certain substance or a certain plant that may harm them, it may not. Well, that's not the point. The point is that those laws infringe on the individual rights of people. So when there is a way that people can actually take bad laws and overturn them on the spot through jury nullification, well, that's something we got to inform people about. And that's something we got to inform ourselves about. And if enough people learn about jury nullification, enough people start to understand the concept of individual rights, even if we can't get the politicians to change all the laws, we can at least prevent a few more people from maybe being thrown in jail, thrown in a cage against their will that haven't harmed other people. And it's not just some crazy cockamamie libertarian conspiracy theory, folks. It's a real thing. They use it to, you know, help people that harbored slaves in the North. They use it to acquit people who were, yes, were guilty of smuggling alcohol during Prohibition. But the mindset of the people at the time, it was so clear to them. 
so clear that those were bad laws that they refused to convict people. And eventually the government just had to throw their hands in the air and say, all right, well, I guess we're not going to bother with that stuff anymore. And someday, if we can't get all the marijuana laws overturned, we can't get all the drug laws overturned, we can't get all the gun laws overturned, maybe we can at least inform the people on the ground even more and make people aware that they don't just have to be lobotomized automatons and they're doing whatever they're told and following things as the judge and prosecutors lay out for them. No, you can think for yourself if you're a juror. You should. It's your duty. You should and can think for yourself. You should and can overturn bad laws. That's going to take a lot of people to be informed about this issue, to really get it across, for it to be effective, because they try to filter good, sound jurors out of the system so much. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means we got to try harder. we got to talk more. We're not going to change things overnight, folks. That's, that's the truth. That's what a lot of the Ron Paul people learned when you know they, they didn't just have a magical electoral victory because Ron Paul was so smart and truthful and fiery and said all the right things. They woke up the next day and, and you know he wasn't president and things hadn't changed. Because it takes a long time to inform people. It takes a long time for people's philosophies to change. And that's what we got to work on to see more justice in the world. However, that might take shape. That's why I'm sitting here in the Lions of Liberty studios yelling at a microphone. (laughs) I'm not really yelling. I'm just talking in an excited manner because I'm excited about jury nullification. I'm excited about the Lions of Liberty podcast. I'm excited about sharing this stuff with my audience out there. And I want this audience to keep growing. So, of course, if you enjoy this show, I encourage you to share it with others. Send people over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Check us out on the good old Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. We're on Google+. We have a new forum, the Lions of Liberty Forum on Facebook that you can find. And come in and post your own articles, post your own topics, and start a conversation. Because ultimately, we got to have conversations to change the way people view things. you got to have conversations to teach people about jury nullification. you got to have conversations to change the world. And that's what we're trying to do here, folks, one podcast at a time. Now, we are going to have one more podcast for you this week. Tuesday and Thursday, baby, twice a week. That's the new deal this year. Next week, we're going to have the debut of a new feature. It's the Felony Report with John Odermatt. John Odermatt, of course, is a great contributor at LionsofLiberty.com. He writes a weekly column called Felony Friday where he takes a look at a felony committed by somebody. Maybe it's a politician. Maybe it's a regular citizen. Maybe it's a police officer. Who knows who it'll be? It's different every week. That's what's fun about it. We're going to start a regular feature here at the Lions of Liberty podcast called The Felony Report, where John and I will go over a few of his more recent stories, his Felony Friday articles, parse them down, try to determine if it should be a felony, shouldn't be a felony, and really just have a little chat and break it down for you. So I'm really looking forward to that feature coming this Thursday, The Felony Report with John Odermatt. Until then, folks, one little task, just one. And that is, of course, to live long and live free.